This is Skip Stewart, and this is another episode of Connecting the Dots podcast. Once again, I'm Skip Stewart, the Vice President and Chief Improvement Officer for Baptist Memorial Healthcare. Hey, everybody. I'm H.F. Mason. I'm a general surgeon and chief medical officer at Baptist Memorial Hospital DeSoto and chief quality officer for the Baptist system. Well, today is going to be a pleasure. We are joined by two friends, uh, Dr. Derek Fuquay and Jacob Landsberger. Landsberg, and we're going to be talking about a subject that is somewhat the hot topic of the day. How do we think about patient flow? Sometimes people uh, reference that in a lagging metric called length of stay, but how do we think about how the patient flows uh, through our hospitals? But before we jump into that, uh, Derek and Jacob, if you would introduce yourself and tell the audience a little bit about yourself and where do you work at and and what's your role there? All right. Hi, I'm uh, Dr. Derek Fuquay. I am the chief medical officer for Northern Arizona Healthcare. I'm an internal medicine hospitalist, and I still see patients uh, throughout the month as well as uh, perform my duties as a system chief medical officer. Uh, been at Northern Arizona Healthcare for 14 years. Uh, came here right after residency uh, in Portland, Oregon, and love it here. My wife's also a hospitalist here and director of our transfer center, so she definitely has some things to do with length of stay and patient flow. Um, and great here to great being here to talk to you guys. Yeah, thanks, Skip. My name is Jake Landsberg. I'm the system vice president of care transformation and quality uh, with Northern Arizona Healthcare. I have the privilege and honor of leading operating efficiency, clinical performance and safety and care transformation uh, for the company. I've been with the organization since uh, March of 2020, so almost four years uh, now. He got here just in time for COVID to hit. Yes. Um, A little bit about Northern Arizona Healthcare. Um, We have about 3,500 employees and um, we cover... 700,000 lives across all of Northern Arizona. It's a 50,000 square mile region that we cover. We're the only level one trauma center north of Maricopa County, which is where Phoenix is at. So Mm -hmm. we have such a huge area of space that we cover. In fact, the area that we cover is bigger than most states in the United States uh, for our our larger hospital Flagstaff Medical Center, which is the, the level one trauma center. Well, guys, that's great. And, and once again, thank you for being here. And uh, I'm I'm excited to talk about this topic. You know, we always say that um, misery loves company. And, and I say that kind of tongue in cheek because all it seems like, uh, as Skip said, all hospital systems and hospitals we we are struggling with, uh, you know, like you t- said, not only staffing, like you said earlier, Jake, but but length of stay and flow. So I'm really interested in in getting y'all's take. And, and one thing you know, when we talk about length of stay, a lot of times we don't equate it with flow. And I know that that just because you're flowing patients doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to have a low length of stay. But I do think it's safe to say that without flowing patients, you you cannot decrease your length of stay. G- g- give me, uh, Jake or, or Derek, uh, give me your thoughts about that and how you guys have thought about length of stay and flow sort of in the same bucket. I, I don't think you can talk about one without talking about the other. Um, what we know from experience and what most, I think anyone in healthcare knows that's in a hospital is that 
your ability to get people out of the hospital or reduce your length of stay, even by just a few hours, is the kind of thing that allows patient flow or we'll talk about patient throughput to be maximized. And it's one of the issues that we've struggled with for a long time, that idea of getting those people out of the house as early as you can so that the ER is not backed up with a six hour wait by 3 p.m. and we move people through. I I, I know we we talk about it and Jake's the most amazing process person I've ever seen, so he can detail this much better than I can. But the idea of we have a committee for one and a committee for the other, but they're so integrated that you can't talk about one without the other. And to me, the length of stay, you can't start throughput conversations without correcting the length of stay. And that's so that's where we focus the most. And Jake, what are your thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, both are really related uh, toward creating additional bed capacity, right? So if we're appropriately managing patients' time that they spend in the hospital uh, and discharging is you know, appropriate, that creates additional bed capacity. Uh, we know ED demand, emergency department arrival patterns, uh, transfer center arrival patterns, follow typically follow ED arrival patterns, and those are very predictable. Right. So you typically see large volumes in the afternoon toward the late evening. Um, So the sooner we can discharge patients, the earlier in the day, right, prevents us from backing up um, overall as a system to kind of keep things moving so patients can get bedded. Uh, We're not backing up the OR. And like Derek mentioned, uh, you know, it was the only level one trauma center in northern Arizona. It's absolutely important, um, you know, for us to be able to accept, uh, you know, patients into the system that ultimately need our care. Yeah, we don't have the ability to go on divert and let the hospital across town take some of the heat. We we have to take that heat. And for us, it's it's a little bit of a mission as well. We have a very large Native American population that we take care of in the northeastern part of the state. Um, economics are a big issue there. We're already two to three hours away for some of those people and their family. And to go to Phoenix, which would be the next closest location, you're going to tack on another two to two and a half hours of travel, which may be cost prohibitive in some cases. So Mm -hmm. keeping patients closer to home is important for us. So this is a big problem for us to solve in terms of serving our mission. Jake, you talked about, you know, being able to predict pretty accurately the, the arrival and the volume of patients that are coming to the ED. Are you guys leveraging your daily census and and how many discharges you are having and and things like that to um, to staff your beds and 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 it's going to lead into my next question is is how how much does your capacity affect flow through the hospital because we know that that as <laughs> as systems start getting at capacity our efficiency uh, decreases. So so how do you guys look at capacity and look at staffing to predicted capacity? Yeah, great question. I think, um, you know, first we set our goals uh, really around creating that bed availability, right? So like I mentioned, we, we have a really good idea on average per day of week, um, you know, how many patients are going to be arriving through the ED, right? How many of those are going to be uh, needing inpatient or observation beds? 
Um, also, you know, transfer center volumes relatively predictable, you know, as well, you know, following ED demand. And of course, we have the surgery schedule too. So all of those inputs, um, you know, that require uh, bed space, um, you know, we were able to model out and really for us to derive our goals, right? So how long should patients stay? We use a geometric mean length of stay percentage, which is, you know, number of midnights uh, the patient actually stayed divided by, um, you know, for acuity, how long they, you know, should have stayed, which is an index, um, but also the percent of patients that should discharge by 1 p.m. Um, and we have a goal of around 33% of patients leaving by 1 p.m. Because if you think, you know, that's probably the time uh, where ED demand is the highest, right? It takes time to turn over the rooms, to call report, move the patient up. Um, and for us to model that out on an average day, uh, we're targeting, you know, around 33% of those patients at least discharging by, by 1 p.m. Um, you know, I'll say we have a great, uh, you know, business intelligence analytics team that's looking at, you know, the data using some uh, predictive modeling as well. Um, and there's just a ton of opportunity, you know, there. If you look at, if we can predict demand with a relative, you know, degree of, of certainty, right, that demand can feed into predictive models around staffing, resource utilization, right, and just mm -hmm. being able to optimize uh, even, you know, as, as far as sequencing of events, uh, you know, even, right? So if ancillary departments know which patients um, to prioritize really to help improve flow and throughput throughout the system, um, that's really where some of the great uh, potential could be unlocked. And we had a great win on that recently. So one of the things that Jake and I do together is we get the right people in the room. And I know that's, oh, really? That's a genius thing. Get the right people in the room. But we get the right people in the room and create an environment where they'll actually listen to each other and partner with each other and not point fingers and blame one another. And a lot of that has to do with the culture we're creating at our organization. Um, but we had, we looked at the hospitalist data for peak, peak admission times and how long it was taking the hospitalists to get to the patients from the ER and get them admitted. And we had this terrible pattern that we were seeing really get bad around, was it like four in the afternoon, Jake, where things were really going sideways and they were not getting better until morning. And we sat down with the hospitalist director, which used to be my old job, but I, I still try not to get too involved, but we had our hospitalist director there with um, some ER folks, Jake's uh, data people that are like engineers are amazing and worked through ways to change the way that they staff and how they take patients. They were completely open to it. And then we looked at the data after one month of making that change and we saw what looked like a reasonably flat line. It was mm. nuts, the change that happened. And not only did we see a reasonably flat line, we also saw the hospitals have a backup call system. Their backup call system use dropped enormously. So we had wow. happier hospitalists not getting called in. We had a steady flow of patients from the ER to the floor. And that was just using these great people that can look at the systems and how they work, but then getting the hospitalist director to be able to work with them and say, yeah, that's a good idea. We can try that, which is something that had we had not been able to accomplish in the past 14 years I had been here. Not because I was a difficult hospitalist director. We just didn't have people that would communicate with sure. one another in the way that they do now. That's 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 a great win. And do you guys, do y'all look at your discharge efficiency from a standpoint, okay, this is how many patients we have in the house. 
and on a Monday, we we normally discharge 20% of our our inpatients, or and on a Friday, we discharge 25%. Do y'all do y'all look at that in any way? Yeah, we do. We we try to smooth the demand as best as we can, right? So you know, if we know. Uh, and where that comes in most is around like block scheduling, right? So if you have a lot of services that typically have, you know, on average three night stays, uh, you don't want them operating, you know, on a Wednesday or Thursday because we know stay can be prolonged over the weekend, you know, as well. So that plays into, you know, how we try to smooth demand overall, you know, as a, as a system. What, Jake, what, Jake you, know, go ahead. You, you have a great reputation. Uh, on performance improvement and and analytics, and that's why we were so excited to have you join us today. What's one thing that has surprised you, Jake? Sitting where you're at today, compared to a year, year and a half ago, two years, you know, what's one thing that, you know, anytime we're involved in problem solving, you know, we have a natural inclination to want to jump to conclusions, that's human nature. And so we have to really be disciplined to really understand the problem. I'm so curious, what is the one or two things that was a real big aha for you? Yeah, that's a great question. I think um, something that still uh, have to remind my teams of, you know, frequently is uh, improvements like an art and a science, right? Um, so obviously, you know, working with the data team, they look at numbers, they look at graphs, they look at ways to optimize uh, performance. Right. And that's great if you're talking to uh, machines or computers. Right. But where the art comes in is how do you actually influence that change? Right. Um, so taking getting the care team involved, the people that do this work, you know, every day for 12 plus hours a day. Right. They're the ones that know how to make things better, make the system better, make the process better. Um, and if they if they don't understand the, the data piece. Right. And more importantly, not just data but information and insights to drive those improvements. And if we're not um, all on the same page as, as far as the why and the purpose, um, you really lose uh, the, the full capability of, of really being able to deliver some amazing outcomes. I think the difference, I'm listening to Jake and just listening to the words that he's saying, you know, I love it all, Jake. Um, we never had, a business intelligence department like we have now with the expertise that we have now and we never had a leader like jake that could make all that work the way it does and one of the things when i listen to jake and i hear him say they have to understand the why we have to get the people at the ground level involved and one of the things that we've done here in ah over the last two years is we've put all of our leaders and several physicians through an entire leadership development program mm -hmm. that we we did hire outside people to do this. It has <clears throat> been fantastic because what happened with that is all the all of these leaders now have a common language that they use. They understand when Jake says the why, that's part of their teaching, and everyone knows. Oh yeah, I got to go back to my leadership training. Or when we say relationships, and they use the words cover and move for that, and then all of our people understand. Oh yeah, we have to think back to these things. It's really helped, I think, when we're able to get those folks together to have a hospitalist director and a care management director trust the business intelligence data because they understand they're all part of one big team. I, I don't think I can say enough about how important it is to put your leaders, give them the, the tool set to understand leadership 
beyond understanding the data because they'll never believe the data without the relationships they need to make things move forward. It's it's so it's really really been a big help for us with this. Oh, All yeah. those things coming together. Oh yeah, it's always comes back to culture. Culture drives behaviors and behaviors drive results. And and if you're all thinking the same, you know, I when we think about length to stay, you know, it is such there are so many pieces to that puzzle. You know, whether it's the hospitalist, whether it's it's case management, it's your post post acute sniffs and, and and it's your therapy and things like that. What when you guys started really looking at your length of stay and 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 you know some a, a lot of times you're like where where do we begin we don't you know there's so much so much that we possibly could do we don't even know what to work on what were some of the biggest rocks that you guys attacked or found early on and and, and tell us about some of your 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 kind of biggest wins or, or or earliest wins yeah i i think um joining the organization, you know, certainly some opportunity. Um, I think first uh, is is developing um, a, a system, right? Um, and system meaning kind of standardized process, um, really expected process, uh, you know, across the organization for how we manage uh, length of stay, right? Because without a, a system or a predictable kind of pattern of how things should occur, you can't really manage unwarranted variation because you have variation everywhere, right? So um, I think first developing the system approach, right? So that means, you know, and that's every care team, right? From care coordination on, you know, what's our expectation for how soon we're, we're doing, um, you know, patient assessments, identifying barriers, right? To how we're staffing, you know, um, you know, specific units around, you know, hospitalists, you know, moving toward a geographic type model, setting up standards as far as, uh, you know, communication huddles, discharge rounds, right? So developing the foundation first um, to, to start um, and then identifying what's kind of the next area of opportunity. And there could be hundreds, uh, right? But um, again, without that system and structure in place, it's hard to really understand where there's variation because without the system, there's variation everywhere, right? I would say we Absolutely. created a lot of processes up front that care management, like you said, how they're who they're looking at first and how they're going about it and what time of day they're doing it. The hospitalists with when are we doing multidisciplinary rounds, which we just changed actually to a different time. And what can they do the day prior to get the person out and how can they identify that and tell people about that? And then with nursing, having them prep patients at night for an early morning discharge and having expectations around that. And like Jake's talking about, we knocked down some of those big things and now we're starting to get to work on things that are a little more nuanced that we wouldn't have been able to do without sure. the big stuff. And we also have to look at, there are some things that we can't control. Like you can only control what you can control, right? And so for us, skilled nursing is a difficult one because we don't have a, we have skilled nursing facilities in the area they of course have staffing issues so we have to take into account that's not one we can really do a lot of digging in on right now we also have a hospital we're, we're in the process of getting ready to build a new hospital and right now our med surge tele units and progressive care unit 
often run at 90, 95% capacity, which you guys know is not optimal for patient flow. And so we can't really control the capacity all that well either. And so what we control is building a new hospital, but we have to work with what we can fix. And sure. so far we've been successful with that. So here's a different question, uh, Jake and and uh, Dr. Fuquay, you know, um, a different the opposite side of the coin. So when we think about flow, we think this very simplistic example as we think about the river, the water flowing, and we look in that we look in the river and we see boulders and we see the beaver dam and we see tree limbs, and we see all these things that are impeding the flow. Uh, we know that the challenges you spoke about with SNF, but if if there was one big obstacle that you really are wrestling with right now that could have a big impact on your patient flow, what is it? Uh, yeah, I, just one, uh, Skip, yeah. you know? I mean, <laughs> you, you can give more than one if you want. <laughs> no, I, I think kind of what, um, what Dr. Fiquet was mentioning, um, you know, we run really tight with beds, right? So our ICUs and med surge, um, you know, approaching, 85, 90 plus percent occupancy, um, you know, older plant, you know, as well, uh, currently at FMC. Uh, I would love to have 85 or 90 percent. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, you know, some benefits, but one of the downsides, probably the biggest downside is um, the amazing orchest orchestration that has to happen from our um, bed placement uh, team. So, um, you know, obviously with the constraints, uh, like we were mentioning, um, you know, we don't have, a, well, we do have a dedicated observation uh, unit, um, you know, but that's kind of within the normal uh, bed tower as well. Um, and, you know, when we're holding a lot of patients in the emergency department, uh, oftentimes they need to overflow that unit within patients as well. Um, and, you know, that loses the cohorting of OBS, right? You yep. lose efficiency of, you know, um, the focus factory mentality of that dedicated OBS unit. Um, so that makes it really challenging, right? If we had more bed capacity to truly cohort those patients and patient populations, um, not only would we see greater efficiency across the system, um, but, you know, patient length of stay would be lower, you know, as well. Probably timeliness of discharge would be uh, better than it is currently, but we just don't have that luxury, um, again, uh, because we're trying to decompress the system as a whole. And sometimes that means overflowing those specialized or specialty units. I don't know, yeah, Derek, what, what else would you say? Yeah, I would agree with that because one of the things that we try to do is place the hospitalist patients geographically. And we're we try really hard. And what, what are we at? Were we like at 40 percent? And it, yeah, it, it, it's oh just because God. we can't. You just have to have that bed from the ER. We don't have the time to do the logistics of moving a patient to a different floor, cleaning yes. that bed. Yep. And I was down in the OBS unit with our CEO yesterday and looking at the board, and there were two people in the OBS unit that had been there eight days and seven days. And that's because the ER is too busy. you got to move them. You can't move the person from OBS and clean the bed and just what Jake's talking about. And, for example, if I come in in the morning and it's a day where I'm seeing patients – I get here really early. I get here at like 5.30 and I, and I start getting my day going and I'm spread out so much across the campus that I go see my sick people first. And by the time I make my way over to some discharges, that's someone that if they had been geographically cohorted, I could have discharged them at 
I could have put the orders in at six in the morning for the mm-hmm. discharge, but instead I'm not putting that order in until 10, which is still good. But now instead of leaving before lunch, they're leaving after lunch. And that all that that those operational inefficiencies that we struggle with because of our physical campus, which hopefully are going to be corrected. It'll take five years to build that thing. But that's that's one that we really we're, we're doing good work, but that's hindering us. Is your ICU open or closed? Uh, it is technically from a med, med staff perspective, it is open, but it operates as if it's closed. So if I have okay. a patient that's on the floor, they have respiratory decompensation, they need to be intubated, the intensivist takes care of that patient. When they're done with that patient and they're better and they're going to come back to the hospitalist, they will call and sign it out and the hospitalist will take it back. They're not just consulting down there. So, so, but, but are, are the hospitalists rounding on those patients in the, in the ICU? Okay. They are not. No. I gotcha. Yeah. And, and that, that's what, here at, here at DeSoto, we're open. And sometimes that, as far as cohorting patients, you know, hospitalists may be following that patient in the, in the ICU for seven days. Yeah. And when they come out and to, to keep that continuity of care, they want to, they want to keep taking care of that patient, but they may be spread out. Yeah. All yeah, over we the hospital. We, we haven't done that in years. I, I, I don't think anything good or bad about either model. I prefer sure. this model because I feel like the intensivists are trained to do that. They're they're going to resuscitate the patient and they're going to give them to me and I'm going to tune them all up for what they need to do when they need to, when they go home. Like sure. I'm going to get their insulin right, all that kind of stuff. Are, are, are so you guys on, just, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, no, no, Derek. Are you guys on Epic? Uh, CERN. CERN, okay. Do y'all, you know, Epic, we have something called where we can put in the the estimated date of discharge. Does, does Cerner have anything like that? And and that's my first question, and which it sounds like it's a yes. But do y'all leverage that? Where okay, we're planting a stake in the ground. This is when we think this patient's going to go home. So everybody on the treatment team is working toward that goal. Yeah. So I mean, that kind of goes back to the point around developing predictable you know systems and structures. So yes, yeah, Cerner does have the anticipated discharge date. Um, you know, before we started really the length of stay and throughput, uh, you know, improvements, that date, you know, you'd ask 10 different members of the care team, they say, oh, it's never updated, or the date in there is never accurate. So we just ignore it. Um, you know, so getting people, um, you know, trained, you know, around how to use the date, right, to drive the care plans, um, you know, has been really, really beneficial, um, you know, obviously, and we're looking too at kind of accuracy of the date, right? Um, it, it may be that upon final discharge, um, you know, uh, the date matches the date of discharge. But if we find out that the, over the patient's five-day length of stay that it changed seven times, well, then it doesn't, you know, really add incredible value uh, there. So that date uh, really drives kind of the, the team toward the plan, um, and create some predictability as well to the earlier point of, you know, now we can start identifying tomorrow how many discharges we're going to anticipate, you know, sure. and then adding the the uh, incoming patients uh, for de- demand to kind of see how the day is going to progress. And then we built that order, Jake, that is the readiness for discharge order. Mm-hmm. So if I'm rounding on a patient, even if it's early in the day and I know, hey, I need to make sure that they're creatinine is going to be better in the morning or it's trending in the right direction. And if all that's good, they're going to go tomorrow and I can put in the readiness for discharge order. And then that's a tip off to the care coordinator, to the nurse, that all this stuff needs to be teed up in the morning. So when I show back up to see that patient at 730 and I have what I need, they've done a lot of front end work. So it's not all being done just after I put the order in. Sure. 
you know, when we think about length of stay, a lot of times, um, you know, we tend to say, well, that's that's case management. You know, that that that's that's their baby. Talk to us about nurse leadership and how important nursing and nurse managers and nursing directors, uh, the the role that they play in in, in length of stay and and how important that that partnership between case management, nursing, ancillary services. Well, you know, like I said, when we used to have these meetings years ago, I remember going to this as a as the hospitalist director and it was always blame, blame, blame. This is care management's fault. This is nursing's fault, et cetera. Um, Our leadership development has made a huge difference in helping people work together as a team and understanding it. We have an amazing care management director, Lisa Davison, and an amazing med surge tele director, Luann Mace, who work together so well not blaming and understanding they each carry a part of this burden getting them in the same room and having them work together with our process engineers and our doctors is has been such a big deal nursing has so much work to do and having the buy-in of those nursing managers to to help to lead their teams to say these are the things that you need to do to be ready for discharge and you need to be paying attention to this you should be familiar with if this patient gets an echocardiogram they could go after that echocardiogram having the nurse managers lead their teams is vital because really as much as it's a care management issue and it's a hospitalist issue or whatever physician issue those those nurses are the ones that make it at the end of the day happen no one leaves until the nurse finishes their work on that patient. And our, our nurse managers have been tremendous help there. Yeah. Wow, that's a, that's a great answer. Before we started recording, uh, Derek, you, you mentioned that your wife uh, was, she was the director of the transfer center. Yeah. T- tell me a little bit about that, about having uh, what role a clinician plays oh. <laughs> plays in, in the transfer center. And, and what, what is what is her daily, what, what is her daily work like? Well, she acts like it's a lot. No, I'm kidding. It is. So, <laughs> you better watch out. There's also there's also three boys that have to get transported everywhere. So I sure. um in fact right after this we're gonna I have a meeting with with her and some other people. Just I think Jake too. Um, it's tremendous how much work she does. Um, the transfer center here because we have such a big geographic area. We own our own ambulance company and our own air ambulance company. We are bringing people in all the time. The efficiencies that are built into what to the transfer center process have changed dramatically over the past few years, where we have a, a single provider acceptance model. She has well algorithms and rules for all the different services across the organization. So we know that if a patient calls with a GI bleed that we don't believe is a variceal bleed, then that's going to go to the hospitalist and the GI doctor doesn't even get called. And so the hospitalist can accept the patient. Or if we get a transfer that's a particular type of different thing, I can't think of anything on top of my head, that we bypass orthopedics and go to the hospitalist if it's a geriatric hip fracture, or if it's some type of specialty fracture, then the orthopedist accepts the patient and then we'll tell the hospitalist what they know. Those things about the single provider acceptance model make a huge difference in how quick we can get patients here. And we want to say yes, we want to take as many people as we can. And then that's not even to mention when that model breaks down and doctors disagree about how patients should be transferred and the work that gets done on the back end with that. She actually does a ton of work. Uh, Having Uh, having a physician be the person that medically directs the transfer center is actually a huge role, as is, and Jake is shaking his head, uh, a medical director of care management has been something we've added that's been a really big benefit for us as well. 
Do y'all? I know we're but we're, we'll be wrapping up in a minute. But do y'all take a lot of transfers from outside hospitals into into your system? Sixty percent of our patients come from outside the Flagstaff city. Okay. okay. So so seven seven hundred thousand patients. Flagstaff's only an eighty thousand person town, and then a fifty thousand square mile. We're taking people from New Mexico, from southern Utah from the far western part of Arizona. It, so it's large distances. Like I said, we own, is it eight or nine aircraft, Jake? I don't remember. It's eight or nine aircraft, and we're and we're flying all over the place bringing people here. Wow, wow. Wow, this is went really fast. <laughs> I think we could have talked for hours. You know, the fun part of this is, you know, uh, just to use an example, uh, Dr. Mason and I are both big SEC football fans, and and you think about the interdependency that goes on with the different players, you know, in, in that in that system, right? And this is a significantly more complex system. That we have this complex socio-technical system where, yes, we're dependent on technology, but we are so dependent on people, and and y'all are just doing some great great work and. Y'all have been so kind with your time. We've, I know, had many phone calls with you, but there's a part of it's kind of fun, too, because there's this X's and O's. We're trying to figure out, you know, how do we allow that patient to flow forward? And every time you discover a patient that could have been discharged on Friday, but it's Monday, oh, or... Yeah. It's it it lets you it reminds you that wow we still have so much opportunity to improve our processes but you know Derek and Jake I just want to say on behalf of Baptist Memorial Healthcare thank you so much for your time thank you for everything you've given to our organization uh, even above and beyond this podcast but thank you so much for this conversation today I hope that both of you'll consider coming back in the future. But we, we are just so incredibly grateful for the work you're doing. Uh, I'm learning so much, Jake, through you. I mean, you are a true leader when it comes to performance improvement. And just really, just I tip my hat. So, so thankful for y'all. So appreciative of you. And just uh, just look forward to learning more from you. Absolutely. A, thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for reaching out to us originally, Skip. It's been a great uh, relationship. So, yeah, it's it's really fun to talk to other people about stuff that we're working on and share ideas. We love it. Sure. Thanks, Thank guys. Thank you all so much.